you can see, we are at the moment doing a, a series on wisdom. So we're looking at three books from the Hebrew Scriptures, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And this week, we are looking at the book of Job. Uh, so we've reached the last one. Um, just one thing I wanted to flag, since we've got just over the last few weeks, we've got quite a few new people. Um, this is a community where we have kind of community conversation. We pass the mic around and get people's feedback on questions. And, and just a reminder for, for those that have been around for a while and something for those that are new, we try to follow the kind of principles of um, kind of safe circles that the Quaker elder Parker Palmer created in the States, where when we talk together... We don't correct each other, we don't try to teach each other, we don't try to rebuke each other, that this is a, a safe place for sharing your own experience rather than kind of engaging critically with what the person before you said. Uh, so we'll, be, we'll have two small windows of opportunity, they don't have to be too small, for you to sort of give your feedback on some stuff and I just wanted to, to flag that. Um, so it feels like the... Noise levels quieten down enough for me to pray, so maybe I'll do that. Loving God, we, I thank you for this community. I thank you for what a rare privilege it is in a, a culture and society like ours to meet together with people and to think about questions of our spirituality, think about questions of our inner life, and think about topics like wisdom, what it is to be wise, what it is to live well. I pray that you'll be with us this morning as we wrestle with those questions, that we will be kind to each other, that we will be open and vulnerable and help this to be a time where we can connect with each other and with you. Amen. So very quickly, I'll talk to you about Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, what we did with Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, because um, as Tamsin said on our first week, these three books really do go together. Um, you can see them as in conversation with each other. Uh, you can see them also, as we'll say later, as a kind of three stages that we cycle through in life. Uh, and the first stage is a stage of, uh, I guess, simplicity, where we feel like life is clear and simple. It's a moral universe. If you do the right thing, good things will happen to you. If you do the wrong thing, then there will be consequences. And this is the vision of life that is presented in the book of Proverbs. It's a simple vision of how to live. And there's great truth in it. And as we said... For those who are in the first half of life, for children and for young people, this idea of creating boundaries around our, our ego and our selfishness to encourage us to live in a way that helps others to flourish and that creates connection and justice and love, these are kind of profoundly important lessons for, for young people to learn. Richard Raw, who's one of our kind of patron saints, talks about this is the task of the first half of life, that 
The task of the first half of life is to create a proper container for one's life and answer the first essential questions. What makes me significant? How can I support myself? Who will go with me? Um, so we're looking at those questions of life and success, security, and these are the kinds of questions that Proverbs addresses. Um, but we also recognise, and this becomes clear in the book of Ecclesiastes, that life is not always that way. That principle of do good and good things will happen to you, do the wrong thing and there will be negative consequences, that is not always the case. And there are seasons of life for all of us where it feels like the opposite is true, where it feels like the good are punished and those who exploit flourish. And we all can enter into seasons of grief, seasons of meaninglessness, where it feels like the promises that were made to us when we were young of how life should work out if you do the right thing, that those were lies. And that's the, you know, Ecclesiastes is a complex book and that's not the only thing that we can get from it. Uh, but in, in the context of this series, we're just looking at these three stages, I guess, in, in fairly simple terms, and seeing Ecclesiastes as representing that stage of life where things feel meaninglessness, feel meaningless. Um, and certainly my life very much followed that trajectory. You know, I was brought up in a, in a Christian home where there was a script given to me, live this way and you'll flourish. Uh, and then... Um, the end of my first marriage and um, the devastation that came from that put me in very much an Ecclesiastes mindset of feeling like not only was God not on my side, but that God was actively tormenting me. And I think a lot of people here can identify with having been in a phase like that, and if you haven't, then that's great. <laughs> Um, and so this week we're moving on to the third book in our series, which is a book of Job. And the book of Job is a book which is looking at perhaps a third phase beyond that sense of loss and meaninglessness, where we find a place where we can still trust despite tragic loss. We can still trust God despite those experiences that we've been through that have created that space of meaninglessness and tragedy and have made us question everything about what we were told. The great thing about Job is, as opposed to Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, it's a story, uh, so it's easy to encapsulate. And what I thought I'd do, rather than just give you a summary of, of the book, is play a video. It's just six minutes. And before we watch it, I guess a couple of trigger warnings. Uh, the first is that it's narrated by two straight white American men, so that could be triggering for almost all of us. And the second thing is that God is referred to as he, which can be triggering for some of us. I ha am, having grown up in a church where God was always referred to as he, I'm amazed at how quickly I've got to a point, after not doing that myself, <clears throat> of being like really jarred when I encounter God referred to as he. So I think it's an important thing just to be aware of that it, that's in this 
video. The third thing I want to say um, before we watch, if you're new here, you'll realize this is the church of caveats and qualifications, is that, as Tamsin said in the first week, Job is a fable. In fact, the fable that the book of Job is based on pre-exists this book. It was a fable that was in circulation in the ancient Near East before the writer of Job took the fable and inserted this big, beautiful poem in the middle. The reason why that's important is because it helps us to engage with the, the God character in the fable as a character, not necessarily as some kind of timeless and eternal representation of exactly what God is like. This is, for those who've been here for a while, you know, this is, we, we're constantly going on about the God character versus God. But it, it just helps to create a little bit of emotional distance from the story because this story can be quite triggering and provocative. The representation of God, certainly for me, is very challenging. So just to help with that, if you think of the God in this fable as a God character created by an ancient people rather than as God, that might help you to kind of have a, enough emotional distance to be able to engage with it. And after we watch, I'm just going to get your responses. And um, for those who have been here for a while, again, this is an, an open and safe space for whatever responses you have, as long as we're not teaching and correcting other people. Whatever it is that you feel in response to this is fine. Okay, so that's enough. Let's, <laughs> let's watch the video. Um, just anyone that's listening to the podcast, I'm going to edit out this six minutes. So if you're listening now, you might want to pause and go and find the link to the video on the weekly note. Um, but for those that are here, you have seen it. And I'm just interested to know what your responses were to the story. Yeah, I'm really not sure what to make of Job. I've seen that end response from God used to justify a lot of um, very shallow views of God where it's been like, see, look, Job, Job can't understand what God's doing, so therefore our views of God and how you should behave and live your life, you don't need to understand them either. And so I've seen it used in that way and it kind of makes me wince a bit, that takeout. But in the same regard, it resonates with me the... The being at peace with with God through hard circumstances. So, yeah. Beautiful framing. That's exactly what we're talking about today. Yeah. <clears throat> how it's how it's been used to justify all sorts of terrible things, and yet somehow it resonates with us. And how, and that tension is exactly what I want to talk about today. Um, but that doesn't mean that other people's perspectives aren't also valuable. Anyone else got some thoughts or responses? Uh, hi, my name's Stephen, first-timer. Um, I was in a church service last week, and uh, the person leading the praise and worship was giving some thanks for things that people had happened in their lives, and they were giving thanks that someone had got a car. And I was sitting there thinking, we've had major earthquakes in Turkey, we have a war in Ukraine, and yet we're thanking God that someone got a car. Yet I guess for that individual, getting the car could have been a huge blessing um, and so I struggle, I think, just like Job, to try and work out. I, I liked this video because 
God is infinitely complex, and so maybe we're not meant to understand. Maybe there is no answer. He'll bless you with a car. He'll give me a hard time. But at the end of the day, God is faithful, and in him we have to trust. Thanks, and welcome. Do you want to say something, Rachel? Um, it's kind of one way you can look at it is a bit of a almost predestination vibe, which I don't love. Um, and I've been listening to this podcast uh, by Rob Bell. You might know him. Um, and it's kind of saying, like, that the idea of the three-tiered God where, like, God is in heaven and we're on earth and then God kind of comes down and, like, fulfills our prayers and stuff is very um, fulfilling for a lot of Christians. Um, but it doesn't sit right with me when someone's, like, as you're saying, like, I got a car this weekend and I'm like, okay, good for you, but also, like, that would have been great in the Holocaust, hey? <laughs> um, and so it's very difficult to think about if we have that three-tiered view of God, then when, what, what does it mean when God forsakes that, those duties um, and instead gives some person a car park, you know? So, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Ben, nice to see you back, Ben. Yeah, for me, that, that whole thing, it's a, it's a bit humbling when, um, you know, Job goes in there with this main character energy and then God just says, you're actually missing the whole greater system of there's all these other things. It's like, in the credits of a film, you're like third man on the left. But for me, that's kind of like, I don't know, just in my context, like, okay, it's not really all about me. There's other things and, like, you can engage with, like, in, in reading this stuff like a while ago, I was like, yeah, it's like I'm part of the system that's the beauty of the world, that's the Leviathan, the behemoth, and it's not just all me. Yeah, thanks, thanks Ben. That's so helpful. There, it, it just makes me think that there are lots of things that we won't touch on in Job today. This is not an attempt for us to encompass everything that Job offers because you can't do that. Um, one thing that we might not talk about but which is so important is... Job is a parable for the, yeah, like decentering us from life and the kind of the effect that hardship has on uh, ego and how it can enable us to transcend ego to find a place of wisdom where we can actually engage better with the other. So yeah, that's, a, that's a whole theme that people often talk about with Job, which we won't necessarily touch on today. But it's just a great, it's great to flag that there's going to be so much more to Job than anything that we do today. Anything else before we move on? There will be another chance for you to put in your two cents worth. So maybe we will move on because I'm conscious of the children. Someone needs to think of the children. Um, so just, I guess, getting back to what Martin was saying, I think one thing that I've always struggled with and that I think could be a helpful approach for us to Job is that the God character for us can get in the way of us accessing some of the riches of Job. What I mean is, and it relates to what Rachel is saying, that that ancient three-tiered view of the cosmos, that there's kind of the heavens with God as king in God's court and then just below there's the earth and then below that there's the deep. This very simple contained view of the cosmos. It presents us with 
a view of God that for us as the inheritors of a vast universe and evolution and ancientness of creation, it can seem very difficult to engage with. And the, the vision of God presented can be quite alienating. The image of God as an ancient king, the image of these angelic beings as having the capacity to intervene directly and suspend the laws of nature and make stuff happen. The image of God as an authoritarian figure who, in response to being questioned, says, I'm very busy, I'm very important, look at all the things I have to take care of, so kind of back in your box. And Job at the end saying, like an obedient and loyal subject of a king, uh, I am unworthy, I grovel in the dust before you. All of these images and themes and this sense of what God can do and can't do, all of these things can get in the way, I think, for us of what Job actually has to offer. So I just want to flag that first. I guess I want to do two, two things as quickly as possible. The first is just to talk about very quickly our image of God, the models of God that we bring to the questions of wisdom and meaning. And then hopefully having, having created a little space where we can re-engage with Job and set aside the image of God that it gives us, we might be able to just talk about a few of the riches that we can get from Job in terms of wisdom. I hope that's okay. Um, because in, in this community, we've been on a long journey with our image and model of God. And the image that we've landed on is one which is more of what Jesus presents, and that is the image of God as a loving parent. And not just a loving parent, but in the word Abba, which, God, which Jesus uses for God, Abba is like, more like a daddy, mummy word. So it's the kind of relationship that a very young, dependent child has with their parent. And I think if, if we imagine if our model for God is that kind of picture... God as loving parent rather than God as harsh king, then suddenly the, the intuition that we have that there are riches in Job, that there's something there for us that can be powerful for us entering into wisdom, suddenly we're not living in that so much of a space of tension between the image of God in the, in the story and what the riches that we want to extract um, so just very quickly, I want to flag a few qualities of God that are central to the way that we engage with God. So this is not a way of me saying, if you want to be part of this community, you have to agree to this list of things. It's more a way of saying, this is where many of us have arrived, this is where I've arrived, and I find this as a helpful way of framing looking at something like Job. So in answer to the question, how would God engage with us in the wake of tragic loss? My sense is that God would engage with deep compassion because of the parent's deep vulnerability to the suffering of their child. So if God is a loving parent, 
then the idea of God deciding to allow someone to test us by making us suffer is, is horrific. Whereas the idea of God experiencing deep pain and compassion in the face of our suffering, that is something that I can come at. I think the second thing is that we need to reassure ourselves that, as Jesus says, tragic loss is not punishment. That if something bad happens to us, it doesn't mean that it's our fault. And that it may not even have happened for some mysterious reason known only to God. It may just be the arbitrary nature of an evolved universe. And that while it might be the case that God will do everything that God can to redeem that situation, to redeem that experience of tragic loss, it doesn't mean, even in some mysterious way, that that's God's will. Jesus says to us that God's desire above all things is to give us good gifts so that we flourish. That's, that's God's ultimate goal for all of us as God's children is to give us good gifts so that we flourish. But what we've come to wonder in this community is whether the nature of God's power is not the power of of coercion and intervention, but is actually the power of love, of non-coercive love, the power that a spirit, all-pervasive spirit has, rather than the power that an interventionist God has. And so it might be that God in every moment is doing everything that God can through the power of non-coercive love to produce the good and to produce flourishing. But that in a world like this, there are always limits on what the power of love can achieve. There are limits to what non-coercive love can achieve. And that not only is God not withholding God's power to allow a space of freedom, but that God doesn't even have that kingly, interventionist, coercive power, because God is love. For me, it helps make sense of what we're talking about before. It makes sense of the Holocaust and an earthquake in Syria and, um, and in Iraq and then um, someone getting a, a random car spot or getting a car, it, it makes sense of the fact that life seems very arbitrary a lot of the time and yet we can still hold on to and trust a God of love who's doing everything that God can in every moment for our flourishing. To take it one step further, I think, I'm coming more and more to think that the experience of tragic loss is a space where God might even step in to say sorry to us. That a God of love, having created this universe that has evolved in ways 
that have created all of these circumstances for suffering and pain, that God might be saying, this was never my intention. My desire, just like a parent having a child, my desire in, in creating anything, my de- like my desire in having a child, is that that child might flourish. And yet I know that that child will experience pain and loss that I cannot prevent. And there may be moments in my child's life where the level of their suffering makes me think, this was a mistake. I should never have had this child for their sake because what they're going through is too much. And I do wonder whether God has those moments with creation, has those moments with us where God says, I'm not sure any of this was worth it. My goal is glory and beauty and the bringing of all things into love. It's an incredible and glorious goal, but I'm not sure at this moment when I see these horrible things happening as a result of human action, as a result of evolution, as a result of the arbitrariness of life, I'm not sure it was worth it. So I feel like (laughs) there are moments when perhaps God would even apologise to us and yet would still say, you can trust me that despite everything, I am still doing everything I can to pursue this glorious vision of bringing all things together in love. As I say, I am not saying that anyone here needs to accept any of that. What I am saying is that all of us need to find models of God metaphors for God that make it possible for us to trust that God loves us. And what was often done to us, as Martin said, is that we were told, this is what God is like. This is the non-negotiable model of how God acts in the world, what God's power is, and if there is mystery, it's outside of these given facts. And that feels really brutal when people are saying, these are the things that you can't question, but then if you have other questions, set them aside because everything else is mystery. That feels abusive to me to do that to people. And we don't want to do that to you either by saying, no, this is, this is now your model of God. If you struggle with that too bad, <laughs> that, that's not what I'm trying to do. It's more trying to open up a space where we might find some of the riches in Job. I hope that makes sense. I'm conscious of the time, so I want to move on. And I am... Yeah, because I've just got a few, few riches from, from Job. But I did, having thrown that all at you, I did want to give you just a few moments to see if you have any responses, any thoughts. So something else I really like about Job that wasn't in the video is uh, after he has that chat to Job, he addresses the friends and makes very clear that he's not pleased with the way he's been portrayed um, and that their comfort wasn't wasn't comfort, I suppose. And so I, I find in that story somewhere maybe an invitation for when, when we see people who are going through unexplainable hardship um, not to try and rationalise it or give them an answer or a pithy verse to cheer them up because um, I've had those thrown at me in really dark times and 
yeah, I think they did more harm than good. So I, I saw that in Job when God addressed the, the God character addressed the friends at the end. So. Yeah, thanks, Martin. And that's definitely one of the things that I think is the riches, one of the riches in Job. Does anyone have any just, just response to that, the model of God question that we've just been responding? It's fine if, if you don't. Yeah, Nicola. Thanks. Um, just very simply, I'm, I'm, I'm finding a new picture in, instead of the God of power, the God of love. And I'm finding that love picture much more expansive. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Richard Raw talks about the fact that if we could start a lot of our prayers by saying all vulnerable God rather than all powerful God, that might get, it, get us some way towards redeeming our models of God. I'm conscious of the time, so we'll, we'll move on, but feel free to come and talk to me afterwards about the stuff that I've presented with God. What I want to do quickly is just run through a few things. Martin's um, mentioned one of them already. Just one of the few things that I think are the riches of God, that, the riches of Job that we can get to if we kind of are able to maybe wrestle with the image of God. Um, so the first thing is exactly what Martin was saying, that um, God affirms Job's rejection of his friend's explanations of God's actions. So there's something very affirming in the fact that Job is told that he can trust his instincts in the face of tragic loss. When he experiences tragic loss and he says, this is undeserved, this is not just, the book of Job affirms that and affirms that if people come to you with simplistic explanations, with simplistic models of God that turn God into a moral monster in the face of what you have experienced, you can trust your instinct and say, no, that's wrong. That is not from God, what you're saying. Yeah, so the second thing is just that we, we see in the book of Job an affirmation of bringing our whole selves to God in the wake of tragic loss. We see in Job rage, distress, accusations directed at God. And even though God is this powerful king character, and even though God does say to Job, you don't really understand, Job is never rebuked for bringing his whole self to God. Job is never rebuked for his accusations. It's, it's just that God feels the need to answer those because God obviously wants Job to flourish. Um, so there's a beautiful affirmation for those of us who've grown up in communities where there's only part of who we are that we can bring and in the experience of loss and meaninglessness, we have to hide away the sense of rage and the sense of accusation that is there towards God. Um, and this has been a beautiful place for me of being able to bring my own doubts, bring my own um, disappointments, bring my own anger at God um, and for, for that to be normalised and to learn through that, that perhaps God is the same, that God can handle who I am and what I feel. Um, yeah, the third thing, the book of Job suggests that an encounter with God in the wake of tragedy can reawaken the capacity to trust God. Um, talking about God, and that's what happens with Job and his friends, is all this talking about God, and then Job has an encounter with God, and that changes everything. And related to that is 
the nature of that encounter with God. For Job, it is through experiences of creation, experiences of nature, experiences of beauty. One thing that's often lost when we talk about Job, especially if we talk about it like a plot summary, is we lose the fact that this is the most beautiful piece of literature in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's an incredibly beautiful poem. It's still taught in literature departments in universities because of the quality, the beautiful quality of the poetry that's in the centre. And it's, it's important that we don't lose that when we engage with this text because it's half the point of the text is that it is through an encounter with beauty, an encounter with awe, an encounter with nature that we are sometimes able to find our way slowly back to God, find our way out of grief and back towards connection. I was listening to um, uh, an interview with a scientist um, who is a kind of atheist but researches awe, and he talked about the loss of his brother. His brother died a few years ago and the sense of numbness and emptiness that he experienced after that. And he started this practice of what he called awe walks. <laughs> um, sounds like a character from Lord of the Rings, but um, awe walks where he would just walk around his neighbourhood and look for instances of beauty that created little sparks of awe in him. And he found that that practice over time slowly reawakened him to a sense of connection. Not for him a connection to God, but for those of us who have a relationship with God, I think the the promise is the same. Through those little experiences of beauty, little experiences of awe, we can slowly find our way back to God. So I think that is another thing that, that Job offers us. We're almost done. Um, does someone want to quickly just read this passage? Oh, this is one of, one of my favourite passages from Job in terms of beauty and in terms of nature, just so that you don't get to have a little break from my voice. Would anyone like to quickly read this for us? Thanks, Rachel. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions? when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their covert? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the carving of the deer? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth and when they crouch to give birth to their offspring and are, that are delivered of their young. Their young ones become strong. They grow in the open. They go forth and they do not return to them. Job 38, 39 to 40. Thanks. So lastly, um, just a reminder, and Shane will talk more about this next week, so I'm not going to say very much about this, but... Just a reminder as we finish that Job is in conversation with Proverbs and in conversation with Ecclesiastes and that there is wisdom literature for every phase of life. If you are not in the phase of tragic loss and meaninglessness at the moment, then Job may not be the book for you. Um, But what we'll be looking at um, next week is 
the idea of these books as representing a cycle that we might move through in life, a wisdom cycle of kind of simplicity, a, a kind of a simple sense of connection which is disrupted. And as we move through that disruption, we find ourselves in a place that is perhaps more expansive, where our vision of God is perhaps a little bit more nuanced or complex, and that life is potentially a constant cycling through those stages towards a deeper sense of wisdom and a bigger vision of God that can cope with and that can contain all of our experience. But as I say, Shane's going to do a great job of that next week, so we will move on. Um, This is a quote that we've been looking at every week, just from the biblical scholar Pete Enns, that the Bible is not primarily to provide answers, but a book designed to cultivate wisdom, which is a lifelong process of maturing us into disciples who wander well along the unscripted path of faith, in tuned to the presence of God along the way. And recognising that, you know, the path of faith is often feels more like a maze with lots of dead ends and lots of backtracking. But um, hopefully with love, the love of a loving parent as like our, our pole star or our guiding star, as we stumble at times along this path of life, that we know that ultimately what we have in God is a God that loves us. Just yesterday I was listening to an interview with a philosopher, Philip Clayton, and I thought this was beautiful, just saying, the divine is a reality that understands us as our best friend understands us. If that is all I know about God, it is probably enough. That feels like a good place to end. As I say, if you, if you want to talk to me about the stuff that I said about the model of God afterwards, I'm more than happy to do that. Just going to finish with this benediction. This is um, something that Tamsin wrote last week, I think, and I thought it was beautiful, so I wanted to read it again um, this week. We quieten our busy minds and turn. Turn to the meaningful moments where something breaks in breaks us to the truth-soaked cracks in the day that wake us up to the real in front of us. When we touch a hand and it is not vapour but made of loved human, to those meaningful moments that are overwhelmed by purpose, come true shalom, break in, break us for the deeply real where love may be found. Amen. Amen.